Oyez, oyez, oyez. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the land, whose very purpose is to protect their rights and uphold the Constitution, yet which now stands accused of stripping those rights away. win for religious liberty as the High Court ruled in favor of a former high school football coach named Joe Kennedy, who was placed on leave by a Washington school district reciting a prayer at the 50-yard line. The Supreme Court ruling saying that private religious schools cannot be excluded from a program that pays tuition for students in more rural areas. It returned the constitutional right to an abortion. It reverses Roe v. Wade. Welcome to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. Each week, we explore the beliefs shaping our world. One issue that we come back to often is religious freedom. In the last month, a series of decisions by the Supreme Court have some celebrating and others lamenting. The court has played a critical role in discerning what religious freedom looks like in different contexts, from public school classrooms to private spheres like our bedrooms. This month, a new conservative majority upended long-standing precedents, generating a wave of marches and protests. The overturning of Roe provoked the strongest reaction, overshadowing the other decisions that also marked historic reversals of long-held constitutional standards. But the level of fear and rage displayed in the streets, on signs, at marches, and on social media often included references to religion. Amidst the political discord and rhetoric, a rise in hate crimes. Police say someone sprayed graffiti and set a small fire at a church this morning. It happened at the St. John Newman Catholic FBI Community is investigating Church. After pro-abortion extremists torched a pro-life Colorado pregnancy center, leaving behind graffiti that says, if abortions aren't safe, neither are you. According to media reports, anti-abortion pregnancy centers in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Oregon reported threats, vandalism, and graffiti since Roe was overturned. Four days after the ruling, a group of national faith leaders organized a multi-faith service to lament the historic decision. We come together tonight across faiths and across race and across place. Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Sikh, Black, Latinx, Asian, white, from coast to coast we gather. There is compassion, there is solidarity and dignity and power in this space right now. Because we are united in our values, no matter how we pray or where we come from. Together, we lament as a diverse and united community of faith at a moment of deep injustice and inequity. That's Reverend Jennifer Butler, the founder of Faith in Public Life. That's a network of 50,000 faith leaders around the country. Butler is also the author of Who Stole My Bible? Reclaiming Scriptures as a Handbook for Resisting Tyranny. For two decades, Butler has sought to expose the impact of the family values agenda by drawing attention to the most impacted, the vulnerable. 
the dismantling of Roe will have a disproportionate impact on Black women, other women of color, people with low incomes, immigrants, and the LGBTQ community. And that was echoed by Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg, who also spoke, referencing stories from the Old Testament. When the Israelites were freed from enslavement and had the opportunity to create a new society built in justice, they were told again and again and again to care for the widow and the orphan and the stranger. Reminder that some people are going to be more vulnerable. We already know that restricting abortion access disproportionately impacts people who are already marginalized in our society. During the multi-faith service, most shared scripture readings and reflected on their own grief. I have been a crestfallen, brokenhearted, angry woman. In this time when so much of the scaffolding of civil rights, of human rights, of justice have been um, shattered, I'm, I'm mourning, I'm grieving. That's Reverend Jackie Lewis. She's senior minister at the Middle Collegiate Church in New York. She's also the author of Fierce Love. She called those gathered to turn their grief instead to love. We who believe in love, who believe in freedom, understand, I think, that the holy speaks to us in different vocabularies and speaks love in different languages. So in a land that says we believe in religious freedom, this issue of whether or not a person has the right to have an abortion does not belong to the Supreme Court. Lewis and others also named one particular threat, a religious political ideology that they say exists within the Christian tradition. So-called white Christianity, white evangelical Christianity, wanting to impose its set of values on this whole nation. In some sanctuaries, there was celebration about all of the court's rulings that related to religion and Roe. The reason we had so many overreaching regulations in our nation is because the church complied. The church is supposed to direct the government. That's Colorado Congresswoman Laura Bobart. She's speaking from the altar at the Cornerstone Christian Center in Basalt, Colorado. Bobart rose to prominence as an early and strong supporter of Donald Trump. She also identified as a patriot in the QAnon conspiracy movement. The government is not supposed to direct the church. That is not how our founding fathers intended it. And I'm tired of this separation of church and state junk that's not in the Constitution. It was in a stinking letter, and it means nothing like what they say it does. Bobart is a rising star among the Make America Great Again wing of the Republican Party. Her political agenda rests on a narrowly cast story about the founders of the country. Since the 1980s, issue advocacy organizations affiliated with the conservative religious movements opposed to Roe v. Wade have sought to reframe the nation's founding fathers as the architects of a Christian nation blessed and protected by a divine creator from which all rights flow. And then there are those on the other side who lean heavily into events to craft a very different story, one that suggests the nation was to be wholly secular. But the truth, according to Purdue University historian Frank Lambert, is far more complex. We begin this week taking a little trip into our archives. 
Let's take a listen to a conversation between our founder and my predecessor, Maureen Fiedler, and Lambert. In addition to teaching, he's the author of several books about the role of religion during the nation's founding and religious liberty. Welcome to Interfaith Voices, Frank Lambert. Thank you, Maureen. It's good to be here. Now, first, you make an interesting distinction in your book that we rarely hear about. You distinguish two groups, those you call the planters, which would be the early colonists like the New England Puritans, the Chesapeake Anglicans, and the Pennsylvania Quakers. And then there are the founders, that generation of men who declared independence and wrote the Constitution of the United States. So, But let's begin with the planters. The model they left was that of an established church. Did they come here as planters to separate religion and government? They did not come to separate religion and government, but they did come to plant what they considered to be the correct form of Christianity. They thought that the state church, the Church of England, uh, was not rooted in biblical principles, or at least the church had abandoned those principles. So the experiment of a city on the hill, as John Winthrop called it, was to establish a church and a state that conformed to the principles of the Bible, of the New Testament. So they really wanted to establish just a different kind of church, one that was more in keeping with their vision. Even more than that, they wanted to establish a Christian commonwealth. And we see that in their founding documents. In 1639, the first constitution in British North America, the uh, Fundamental Orders of Connecticut, really stated the intent of the Puritans in founding a Christian colony. The purpose of it was, quote, to maintain and preserve the liberty and purity of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, which we now profess. And the authority cited was the rule of the word of God. So if one is to establish a Christian uh, commonwealth or state, those two elements, I think, must be present. And that is the purpose is a divine purpose to uh, further the kingdom of God, and it rests on divine authority or the word of God. Now, not all of the 13 original colonies, however, had this vision. <clears throat> Rhode Island was different, and I believe Maryland was different, right? Rhode Island was different in that uh, Roger Williams was a dissenter from the dissenters. Uh, he left uh, Massachusetts. Uh, he thought that Massachusetts uh, made uh, many uh, eras, including taking the land from uh, Native Americans. So he split off, and he founded Rhode Island on the principle of religious liberty. So did Lord Baltimore in Maryland. Uh, Lord Baltimore was a Catholic, and of course Catholics were under severe pressure and persecution in England. So he founded a colony, Maryland, and very quickly enacted the first act of religious toleration in British North America. Mm. It was very interesting because in much of the rest of Europe, the Catholic Church was just as established a church as the Anglican Church was in Britain. Exactly, but uh, Lord Baltimore and his Catholic followers found themselves in a different position. I mean, now they're, they were in a place that was predominantly Protestant. There were no bishops here. There were, certainly the, the Pope was three or 4,000 miles away, so uh, they had to accommodate to their new situation, and they did so by 
proclaiming uh, religious toleration, not only for themselves, but for all inhabitants of Maryland. Now let's move to the other group, the Founding Fathers, that 18th century generation of men who declared independence and wrote the U.S. Constitution. And you say they evolved a different vision of the role of religion in governance because of two influences, the Enlightenment and the Great Awakening. How so? Their vision was different. Uh, The Great Awakening occurred in the middle of the 18th century, namely in the 1740s, 1750s. It was a religious movement, but it was a protest. It was a protest against even those Puritan churches that had grown formal or cold, and it was an attempt to return the church to a more experiential, spiritual kind of basis. Not many of the founders were directly affected by that, but it changed something very important in this country, and that is religious authority. Because now religious authority, churches, clergymen, are under attack. Now it's the individual, the professing individual, who is at center stage. So by 1776, the fastest-growing sects in British North America are evangelical sects like the Methodist, the Baptist, the Presbyterians. And at the center of those was the individual, the believing individual, the confessing individual, not some hierarchy. The second influence was the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment, in a few words, was a worldview in which human reason supplanted divine revelation as the key to understanding the universe. Now, that does not mean that the founders who embraced the Enlightenment rejected God, rejected uh, religion. They did not. They started with the notion that God created the universe. But God created it in an orderly way according to natural law. And they believed that if they could discern the natural law, they could control nature uh, through science. So in the social realm, they believed that if they used their reason, they could construct a society that protected the natural rights of individuals and would preserve individual liberty. Now, as a result of these influences, would it be fair to say that this generation of founders actually moved us toward what is today called separation of church and state? I think that is a correct view. Uh, And they did so for very specific reasons. What were they trying to do in 1776? Well, of course, in 1776, they were declaring home rule. They were separating from Britain. So the whole project in 1776 was to provide a rationale and to provide evidence for this radical revolutionary act of separation. And so they did that, and we see the the results in the Declaration of Independence. Now, in that document, we see the claim of natural rights. Uh, Natural rights came from God. They're God-given rights that every human being has, the, the right to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, and no governor can take those from people. And Maureen, there's an interesting part of the declaration that I would like to speak to for just a moment, because it it speaks directly to this notion of religion. Okay. If you look at the second paragraph, there is the discussion of a covenant 
or a social contract. Now, the Puritans, a hundred years earlier, had spoken in covenantal terms. But there, it was God choosing a people and saying to them, if you obey me, I will protect you and you will be my people. In the Declaration, the covenant is drawn up not by God, but by the people, by the governed. And the governed uh, draws up a covenant with the governors. And the governors are, are of their own choosing. And in that covenant, the governed declare that they will obey the governors only as long as the governors protect their rights and their property. That's a very different kind of covenant. Uh, Perhaps you could call it a secular covenant, but certainly it stands in contrast to the covenant of the Puritans a hundred years earlier. And would it be fair to say that in the Constitution, of course, we have the First Amendment, which talks about no establishment of religion, and you may not uh, inhibit the free exercise of religion. Is that an attempt on their part as well to separate religion from the power of government? Well, it is. Uh, but before the Bill of Rights, uh, you know, let's take a quick look at religion in the Constitution itself. It is largely absent, and that's no accident. And again, it does not suggest that the founders were godless or anti-religion. Most of them were professing Protestants. Most of them uh, were good Christians. But we're talking here about how they viewed the place of religion in the public square. Many of them, by 1787, had gone through bruising battles in state constitutional conventions where religion had been divisive. It would be even more divisive when the project was to create a more perfect union. Now we've got to bring together 13 disparate colonies with all these different religions, all of these different sects. So sectarian religion to the founding fathers threatened this more perfect union. So in essence, they said, we really don't want religion and the federal government to mix. And so they left religion out. The only place you're going to see religion in the U.S. Constitution is in the negative. There shall be no religious test as a qualification for office. And that's it. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We'll be back after this short break. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.com. 
interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. I'm Ambreen Khan. Before the break, Maureen Fiedler was speaking with historian Frank Lambert. He's the author of several books, including The Founding Fathers and the Place of Religion in America. Let's get back to the conversation. So the founders, in your view, didn't intend to found a quote-unquote, Christian nation? Oh, I think not. Not at all. That was not the project of 1787. And I think they saw the difference between state and nation. They were creating a state, a body politic. But they were not interested in creating a Christian state. At the same time, they saw an important place for religion in the nation. They saw it uh, religion as promoting morality. And to them, morality was central to Republican virtue. Yet there was a poll in 2007, which I'm sure you're aware of, that found that 65% of Americans believe that the nation's founders intended the U.S. to be a Christian nation. What do you suppose folks that say that mean by that phrase? Uh, Many times when people look at the founding of the nation, and in particular the ideas of the founding fathers, They assign to the founders sentiments, ideas, principles that really they want, that is, the people in in the present want to validate their own agendas. But if you go back and look at what the founders said, what they did within context, I cannot see any basis for Mm -hmm. uh, making the case that that they were interested in founding a a Christian commonwealth. On the other hand, they weren't trying to – uh, create a, an atheistic uh, commonwealth either. I mean, religion was not a part of what they were doing in 1787. If we look around, though, we often seem like we're a Christian nation, like Christians make up, you know, vast majority of the population. There are Bible verses etched on stone all over federal buildings and monuments. That sounds very Christian to a lot of people. Well, it does sound Christian to a lot of people, uh, but when you talk about the founders' vision of religion in the nation, they did not see religion as being a part of the state. They did not see the state as supporting religion explicitly, but that certainly does not mean that they thought religion had no role in the nation. They thought it did. Now, let's take a look at a couple specific founders, and one of the most interesting, I think, is Thomas Jefferson, who, of course, wrote the Declaration of Independence. And he was raised as an Anglican, but he was later drawn to deism. And I wondered if you could say, what is deism, and how did it influence his view of religion and government? The short answer is that deism is the religion of the Enlightenment. And the idea is that God created the natural order and then stepped aside. That is, that God does not micromanage his creation. Uh, He leaves that up to uh, his creatures. So that was his view. 
And then, of course, there's this wonderful story of the Jefferson Bible where yes. he actually cut out certain parts. Do you want Can to- you imagine that, that happening uh, uh, today by a president in the White House? Actually, he did that in the White House. But it comes from his notion that reason should be primary in trying to understand the world and, and, and how it works. So when he took the razor of reason to the Bible, he eliminated the entire Old Testament because he thought that it talked about a supernatural, even tyrannical God who seemed to govern by whimsy. Next, he eliminated Paul. He did not like Paul and thought that (laughs) Paul, uh, again, was given too much to supernaturalism, miracles, you know, the Damascus Road experience and what have you. So anyway, he's now down to essentially the four Gospels. He then cut out, literally cut out, every suggestion of miracle and every suggestion that ran against Jefferson's understanding of the natural order. What he was left with were the morals of Jesus. A very thin book. A A very thin book, indeed, yes. Of course, we can't look at all of the founders, but I wanted to at least take a glimpse at good old Ben Franklin. Uh, What was his view of religion's place in government? And and there are some who maintain that he was an atheist, and I wondered if there's any truth to that. There's absolutely no truth, and the reason I say that without hesitation is that he left a creed, and the first words in the creed is, I believe in one God. Now, true, he went on to say, and not much more, Uh, and he spoke directly about the divinity of Jesus, and he doubted it, and he said he was an old man and didn't have time to study it, but figured that he very soon would find out firsthand. But he was a product of the Enlightenment. He was a scientist. He believed that the essence of religion was morality, and that's what he preached. Mm. And his view of religion and government would have been a separation of the two? Well, a separation of the two, but when we talk about separation of church and state, too often we talk about the high wall that Thomas Jefferson used as a metaphor. Uh, Franklin would not have used a high wall. For example, at the uh, Constitutional Convention, he actually advocated at one point that uh, the delegates begin sessions with prayer. It was rejected. In fact, in a, in a footnote on his copy, he said only three or four delegates even thought it was an interesting idea, and it was tabled, so there was no opening of prayer. Now, as we said in the beginning, people like to project their own values onto the founders, reading sure. into them whatever they want. And I wonder, what do liberals most often get wrong, and what do conservatives most often get wrong? Well, I think that liberals uh, sometimes want to turn all of the founders into deists. Uh, or turn them all into secularist. They want to remove any hint of religion from their proceedings. And I think that's inaccurate. The founders believed in God as creator. The founders believed in providence, albeit they thought that human beings were important instruments of providence. They certainly believed in, uh, in Christian morality. So I think it's wrong to, uh, to read back that here were secularists who had no interest, no religious convictions, and wanted to have nothing to do with religion. I think that's a, a false reading. As far as conservatives, they want to do the opposite. They want to turn the, uh, uh, the founding fathers into uh, Bible-thumping evangelicals, uh, that these were all people who were 
firm believers in uh, Jesus Christ, and now I'm quoting a, a, a person who cited that uh, view recently, that George Washington would be uh, a, a member of the religious right today. I think that's wrong. Uh, most of them, in fact, were not evangelicals. Some were deists, some, most were rationalists, some were members of the Church of England, with all that that means. Frank, thanks so much for joining us today. It was my pleasure, Maureen. Purdue University historian Frank Lambert. He's the author of several books about the role of religion during the nation's founding and religious liberty. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. I'm Ambreen Khan. This month, the Supreme Court issued a series of controversial decisions that deal with the separation of church and state, including two that deal explicitly with public schools. The perception among many is that religious groups welcome the rulings, the easing of restrictions on prayers and on taxpayer funding. But that was not the case at the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. I spoke with Executive Amanda Tyler from her offices in Washington, D.C., as part of our ongoing series in profiling faith-based leaders. Amanda Tyler, welcome to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. I understand you are the executive director of an organization that is all about protecting and upholding the right for people to hold beliefs in our country. Tell me about who you are and what is the BJC. That's right, Umbreen, and I'm delighted to be here with you today. I am executive director of BJC, which stands for Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. And we at BJC are in our 86th year of advocating for and educating about religious freedom for all. We do our advocacy and education work for everyone, for people of all faiths and also for people who don't claim a faith tradition. I appreciate you giving that history, but I have to tell you, for some of our listeners, there might be a little confusion. In the world of the Baptist tradition, where and how do you all fit in? I really appreciate that question. I think just a quick primer on Baptist identity, Baptists as a movement date back to the early 17th century and are incredibly diverse in our modern approach and our modern organization. And that's because core to what it means to be Baptist is a sense of freedom and particularly a sense of soul freedom. This idea that each individual is uniquely able to come before God and that no person, not even a government authority, not even the king in the 17th century parlance, should come between a person and his or her relationship with God. And so that understanding of soul freedom, of congregational freedom, has led to a number of different organizations of Baptists. For the last three decades, the Southern Baptist Convention has not supported BJC's work. 
in the meantime, we have been supported by 15 other Baptist denominations. And these denominations differ in all kinds of matters, differ in their organization and their geography, sometimes in their theology. They don't agree on everything. If they did, there wouldn't be 15 different kinds of Baptists, even in our organization. But one thing that they do agree on is the importance of religious freedom for all. From a historical basis, Baptists were dissenters in almost every community that they found themselves a part of all the way through our founding period here and have the experience of being a persecuted minority in, for instance, the American colonies. And so this idea that the government is not our friend, but our foe, that has led to this idea that we want to keep the institutions of religion and government separated. And then also just from an understanding of love of neighbor, that we protect our neighbor's faith freedom as fiercely as we protect our own, that that is how we live out Jesus's commandment to us in the context of religious freedom. You know, you just said that that perception of being persecuted by the state is a characteristic or almost part of the kind of the ethos of this history that Baptists have in the United States. Can you give us an example? Sure, absolutely. In the colonial period of the United States, there were established religions in almost all of the colonies, and none of those established religions were Baptists. And so Baptists in that way found themselves to be on the outside, not in power, and they viewed religion and government as being uniquely ill-equipped in matters of religion. And so Baptists were some of the earliest advocates who really petitioned leaders like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison in Virginia to include additional protections for religious freedom, first at the state level and then at the federal level as well. And so that understanding, having had experience as a persecuted minority, helped animate and elucidate these values for religious freedom for all. Now, flash forward to our current context, Baptists are not a persecuted minority, but we have that experience that leads us to advocate for those neighbors who are. And so most of our modern day advocacy work are for religious minorities in this country, for those who don't claim a faith tradition, those who are finding themselves in a place that needs protection and needs extra advocacy for their religious freedom rights. This has been a busy month. There is a lot of talk about religious freedom and the relationship between faith and government. Well, you say it's been a busy month. As we have our conversation here today, it's been an absolutely devastating week with news and opinions out of the Supreme Court. It's been devastating, I believe, for the credibility of the court. It's been devastating for the rights of women in this country. And it has been devastating for religious freedom. It started with a decision called Carson v. Macon, a case that came out of the state of Maine that had to do with public funding of religious schools. And this case is really an earthquake for religious freedom because for the first time, the Supreme Court held that if a state provides a public benefit, that it must, not may, but must provide funding for religion. And this is a huge break with longstanding principles of American religious freedom. 
in the Carson case, the dissenters spoke specifically to that separation of church and state. Do you think they were being hyperbolic? Sadly, I don't think it was hyperbolic at all. The main dissent in the case, which was authored by Justice Breyer, almost no attention to the words in the first clause of the First Amendment, while giving almost exclusive attention to the words in the second. And so this understanding that the First Amendment has dual protections for religious freedom, the no establishment clause and the free exercise clause, this has been a bedrock understanding of religious freedom in this country that we have long called the separation of church and state. That's really just constitutional shorthand for this idea that we protect everyone's religious freedom, both by protecting against its establishment by government and by protecting individuals' rights to freely exercise their religion. We cannot have religious freedom with only one half of those protections. But a majority of this court has forgotten that bedrock principle, has abandoned the principle of a strong establishment clause, and that enforcing those establishment clause principles is not at all hostile to religion or religious liberty. It is crucial to protecting religious freedom. As you were just describing it a moment ago, that tension between there be no establishment of religion and the free exercise of religion is equally important to each other, and that this decision is changing that balance. Can you give me an example of how that comes to be such a threat? For someone listening going, come on now, isn't this just being more fair to the religious schools in that community? Well, I think that that principle of fairness is something that the majority talked about, but the idea that you are fair only if you treat things absolutely equally just doesn't apply in the government sponsorship of religion conversation. And that's because we don't treat religion just like anything else. You know, this idea of funding Religion is not the same thing as funding a soccer club or funding a debating society. That's because religion is unique. It has a distinct role, a special role, an incredibly superlative role in our society. And it is a special thing that needs to be treated differently. The reason that when we've been in this religious freedom jurisprudence, that we've always looked at them as how do we balance the rights? How do we balance the rights of individuals and the rights of other individuals who don't share that same religion or who don't claim to be religious at all? How do we protect everyone's freedom in this society, not just those who are claiming a free exercise right? But the Supreme Court in these two cases that came out right here at the end of this term have put their thumb on the scale of the side of free exercise and have completely abandoned longstanding establishment clause principles that have protected religious freedom. In Kennedy v. Bremerton, the decision to protect the rights of this coach, talk to us a little bit about what that case was about and What ripple effect that's going to have in public school systems? Coach Kennedy, in this case, is a public school employee, an assistant coach on the varsity football team, and he was asserting a free exercise and a free speech right to engage in prayer immediately after the varsity football game on the 50-yard line 
at a time and place where everyone in the school was there. Many people were joining in. There are all kinds of photos of the fact that this was a very public prayer practice done while he was on duty as a public school employee. The public school officials in that case rightly read the precedent, understanding that we protect religious freedom by not having government-sponsored prayer in public school. And so they offered him a host of other ways for him to have a prayer practice, even while at work, but in ways that did not send the message that the government was sponsoring or endorsing his prayer practice, and in ways that didn't coerce even implicitly uh, public school students to have to pray with him or engage with him. And he refused all of those alternatives and ended up, after being put on administrative leave from his job, not reapplying for his job and bringing this court case that went all the way up to the Supreme Court, not once, but twice, by the way. This is the second time that the court has ruled on some, in some way on this particular coach's prayer practice. And in this case, just like in Carson, the court relied exclusively on the free exercise half of the religious freedom rights and protections, here free exercise plus free speech, and ignored establishment cause principles. And in doing so, they elevated their concern about Coach Kennedy's religious freedom rights over the religious freedom rights of everyone else in that community, including these public school students and their families who have a right to send their children to public school without worrying that an official at that public school is going to interfere with the choices they have made about how to provide religious instruction and whether to provide religious instruction. Justice Sotomayor wrote this dissent in this case, pointed out that we have always had different rules when it comes to protecting religious freedom in the public school context. And that's because public school school students are, one, required to attend school. We have compulsory education. And also that we have long recognized that those students are particularly vulnerable and deserving of protection. Amanda, did you or your organization have a reaction to the court's decision to overturn another longstanding precedent, Roe v. Wade? Well, our primary public reaction was on Twitter on a, in a thread that I put out on Friday. And in that tweet, I reflected both personally, because as a woman, I can't take you know, my identity out of my reaction to this decision. But I reacted as a woman, as American, and as a Christian, and found the opinion in the Dobbs case completely devastating and very concerning about what the future might hold for the health of women, for our individual rights and liberties, and for equality under the law. And the court, in tearing away this precedent, in throwing this incredibly volatile and debated issue back to the states has really opened us up to even more political discord and political discord, particularly about religion, because we know that a number of states will be pursuing anti-abortion laws, total bans on abortion, and they'll be doing so with an explicitly religious agenda. And from a religious freedom perspective, We know that religion does not speak with one voice on abortion rights. There is not one position 
that all religious people have about abortion. And we fear that one religious perspective is going to take root over all others and be the reason that many of these abortion bans are passed in states. Without that protection of a fundamental right, we are going to have a lot more discord, a lot more debate about this issue, and in ways that I fear are not going to be good for religious freedom. The rulings that we've been discussing have many concerned about the court's support in favor for a certain interpretation of religious liberty and have many others, especially in the faith community, raising alarms about the rising influence of what is described as Christian nationalism. How do you see it? Well, I am incredibly concerned about Christian nationalism It suggests that to be a quote-unquote true American, one has to be a Christian. And the problem with this ideology, of course, is it completely conflicts with our understanding of religious freedom for all. I have called Christian nationalism the greatest threat to religious freedom for all that our country faces today. And it is a threat not only on the grand scale in ways that we saw on January 6th, uh, Christian nationalism as an ideology helped drive and intensify the attack on the Capitol and on democracy itself. It's a threat to Christianity itself. And I think that we as a people need to be particularly on guard and ready to have the tough conversations to work to dismantle Christian nationalism. The past week shows that we cannot rely on the United States Supreme Court to protect our rights. And so it is going to be up to every American to stand up for these values of religious freedom for all, even if the Supreme Court will not. How do you respond to Baptists who disagree with you, who don't see this as a threat, but a return to what they believe to be the origin story of the United States? One of the myths that Christian nationalism relies so heavily on is that the United States was founded as a Christian nation. It's this whole narrative of a founding story that directly conflicts not only with history, but with the founding documents themselves. They said that our belonging in society would not at all be predicated on what we believe or how we worship or how we identify religiously. So I would try to have a conversation of reason with them on that ground. But as a Christian, I have deep concerns about what Christian nationalism leads us to do with our faith, that it leads us into a place of idolatry, of worshiping country or political party above God. And that when we replace the American flag with the cross, then we lose our ability to speak truth to power. We lose our ability to be independent and to stay true to our religious convictions. I think we have lost touch in many places with truth itself. And this idea, and we're seeing it coming out in the hearings, but this idea that such a large percentage of the American public continues to believe the lie that the election was stolen just points to this idea that truth itself has become up for grabs. And when we lose touch with that, it becomes incredibly difficult for us to come together as a country. 
we are always going to have a diversity of opinions in this country. I think that's part of what makes our country great. So we are not looking for unanimity. But if we lose touch with truth and that as a value of how we engage in our society, then we might go beyond what we can repair. Amanda Tyler is the executive director of the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. You can find details and a link to her bio in this week's show notes at interfaithradio.org. As Tyler noted at the beginning of our conversation, the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty does not represent the Southern Baptist Convention. The convention has its own arm to lobby and do issue advocacy, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. In contrast to the Baptist Joint Committee, this week, the ERLC Interim Executive Director, Brent Leatherwood, celebrated several of the court's decisions in a statement. Brent Leatherwood, like Amanda Tyler, begins by professing the deeply personal nature of Baptist faith and its influence. Faith is deeply personal to so many Americans and Christians, we believe, Uh, that it rightly shapes every aspect of our lives. We live out our faith in any number of ways, both privately and publicly. But his organization takes a very different view when it comes to Coach Kennedy praying at the 50-yard line. This case with Coach Kennedy, it's centered on the latter. And we believe at the RLC that the Supreme Court rightly determined that an individual employed by a school does not forfeit his or her constitutional right to free expression simply by entering the schoolhouse gate, or, as it were in this case, the field of play. While the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty sees the decision as an imbalance favoring exercise over the prohibition of establishment, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission does not. If it were not already clear enough, this court views religious liberty as a bedrock right in our free republic. The question that many have raised is will the religious liberty and free exercise rights being protected extend to all people of faith and conscience, including those who do not affiliate or identify with a religious tradition? That's all for this week's show. If you missed any part, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or really the podcaster of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices. And while you're there, help us out. Leave a rating and a review. It helps others find us. A special thanks to MC Yogi for our theme music, additional music by Blue Dot Sessions, and a special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy, Richa Carmacore, and myself. The interview with Frank Lampert was produced by Laura Correll and Maureen Fiedler. We want to welcome the radio stations Hawaii Public Radio 1 and Radio IQ in Virginia. Welcome to the Inspired Family. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We're a nonprofit and we rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Remember to stay safe, stay well and stay connected. I'll see you next week.